First, let me tell you that I am a little bit uh, surprised. There are so many of you here because I tried to be honest today and prepare really a talk about what the book is about, which are basically difficult Hegelian problems. So, uh, nonetheless, I would like to begin just with agreeing with you deeply about this uh, this, uh, this ever-presence of ideology today, especially when it denies itself. For example, you know, that's the basic rule of ideology critique. When somebody says we are finally out of ideology, that's where you can be sure they are in. The model, of course, today is this neoliberal economy. It presents itself as the end of the, all those ideological dreams, communist, fascist. Now, <coughs> we finally know, some of them claim even scientifically, what is the only truly functioning social economic uh, uh, order. Uh, the problem here is, why is this ideology? Not for the usual dogmatic reasons that it's not true, but uh, I claim that we should exert a more radical and simpler critique. Neoliberalism doesn't exist in what sense? Not in any mystical sense, but uh, in the sense that if you really look closely what big capitalists and not as such big capitalist states are doing, Nobody is really practicing neoliberalism. They are just preaching this to others to exploit them or what. Take United States. Are you aware how much United States give money, for example, to their farmers or whatever, how strong state interventions are? United States is definitely not a neoliberal state. Okay, if you take a city which should be a kind of a symbol of the successful dynamic capitalism, Los Angeles. You know that not only leftists, even many capitalists, refer to Los Angeles as uh, the socialist republic of Los Angeles. Because it's the city which is so deeply connected with uh, federal state apparatus, especially uh, medical, uh, defense, and so on, uh, uh, state agencies. I mean, this is not liberal. This is not neoliberal capitalism. And I think we are even more explicitly moving in this direction. Take, for example, the states which were so successful relatively, till now at least, in avoiding the consequences of the financial crisis of 2008. China and even more Singapore. I was in Singapore. It almost turned me into soft fascism because it really works as a kind of a smallest, beautiful, proto-fascist, organized, uh, authoritarian, capitalist state. But it's definitely not a neoliberal state. I mean, it's practically a Staatskapitalismus. You know, the state decides very well, very much in detail, where to open the market, in what direction to push economy. That's how they succeeded. China is doing the same and so on. And everybody knows that this will get stronger and stronger. The mystery is precisely this sheer material force of, of uh, neoliberalism, which is again and again totally 
falsified, not by some crazy Marxist critique, but by a very naive, simple look onto reality. Not to mention ecology. People talk about pro-capitalists, about how market is still the most effective tool to fight ecological threats, like to be vulgar, you know the theories, you include the price of nature or at least of negative consequences, the price of pollution into the price of a commodity, you include that cost and so blah blah you regulate it. But the I you know it's very interesting how censorship is practiced today. It is no longer practiced in this direct way where you directly prohibit something. No, I think that today it works much better. How? In, in our so-called free countries, everything is in the media, if you really read it. But it's presented in such a way that you simply, you basically apply what Freud called isolierung as a specific strategy of the this Unbewussten of the Unconscious, which is not direct oppression, uh, Verdrängung, Verstellung, or whatever. You say everything, but you isolate, suspend its symbolic efficiency. It has no consequences. Uh, and uh, this uh, phenomena, again, interest me. Why? Because in China, I find this this is a wonderful data if you want to make a history of ideology in our times. It should have been reported also in your media, probably. Because it was, I read it, I forgot where, about two, three weeks ago. The last Chinese madness, I love it. The prior, prior one is my favorite, you must know it, that some three years ago, their Ministry for Religious Affairs established the rules of reincarnation, not as a joke, like... You are allowed to reincarnate, but you must inform ministry where with... I love this, that like you said, I plan to be reincarnated in that part of China, I don't know, as a saint. And they tell you, no, in that part, all posts for saints are full, only some dogs and worms are free. <laughs> or whatever. What they did now, it's really tragicomic. It's that their state, I don't know which state agency, Ministry of Culture or what, uh, uh, introduced a uh, legislation or whatever rule which prohibits on all of their TV stations and movie theaters any to show any stories which in any way relate to, it's not a joke, time travel and alternate reality. <laughs> the official justification is that history is a too serious matter to be left to such trifling games. But it's clear what's behind. It's that, you know, even dreaming about a possible alternative <laughs> should be squashed. I claim that with us, it's easy to make fun of China here, because with us, sorry to repeat some line of thought which may be known to some of you, with us it may appear different. Of course, you can have all the alternate reality that you want, but precisely because it's isolated, it, it doesn't work. What do I mean by this? It's a very Hegelian point. With this, I'm slowly, 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 maybe we will arrive at, at it at the end, approaching the topic of your book. Uh, uh, did you notice how, in what a strange way, the couple possible-impossible works in our media? What is more and more considered possible, 
what is more and more considered impossible. Many things are possible, more and more, so we are told, especially in economy and private lives. It's possible to, I don't know, if you have money to fly soon to be a private astronaut, it is already possible, I think. It's possible, so they tell us, through genetic manipulations to directly grow your ersatz organs, so that you need a new heart, no problem. They will grow it and so on. Maybe this way we will live eternally. In private lives, sorry for repeat this old obscene joke, I cannot resist it, but I really saw it, not the thing itself, but doctor who does it in New York. The latest fashion in some extreme sexual circles in New York is they can operate your penis so that they cut it into two. So that then you can have, okay, to be vulgar, two women at the same time, if you are men. So all this is possible, more and more. But try to say, uh, maybe we should give a little bit more money for health care. Ah, impossible. Catastrophe, we violate the market rules, it will bring unemployment, it will cause crime. So, you know, isn't it funny that while, you know, it's possible to have sex with two women, to fly, to live eternally, but it's not possible to give a little bit more money for... We, we just accept it, a little bit more money for... Uh, for uh, let us say, uh, healthcare or solidarity or whatever. Here, the material weight of censorship works very well. And it's, uh, I think, again, in a way more terrifying than in China, because if the state prohibits something, this is usually, at least in authoritarian countries, the best proof that the desire to do precisely that is still alive. Like, as a Chinese friend, Wang Hui, told me, they have, when you have some reports in the media about something happening in China, he told me, you never know is it propaganda or true. There is only one way to be sure. If the states explicitly deny something, then it's true. <laughs> you know, for example, when they say, when they say uh, there will be no problems with lack of, I don't know, onions on the market. It means there is run fast by them and so on. So what is even more interesting, sorry to repeat myself, if you want another proof of ideology, it's an old motive of mine, but I like to uh, repeat it because it touches precisely this I know very well, but think about uh, ecology precisely. I mean, there you can see clearly the limits of neoliberalism. While they talk about capitalism, blah, blah, and again, I don't condemn this a priori. Maybe we will have to do it. What? I was shocked to learn that, do you know that big governments, I mean, sorry, strong, like uh, superpower governments, already have intense meeting, preparing plan for what they call geo-geoengineering which is something pretty terrible, although maybe we will have to do it, I don't know. The idea is a very pessimistic one, de facto they admit it, no? The idea is that, uh, uh, that we already missed the moment to do it in this peaceful way through regulation to lower global warming, so we are lost if with any systemic regulations we cannot do it. So the idea is, and it's very seriously considered, why not directly at a global level, we are not talking about one valley where you do whatever you want, uh, intervene into our 
atmosphere, waters, and so on. There are already plans being made, but I'm not those conservative Greens who warn against this. I'm here much more skeptical. Maybe we will have to do it. But it's good to know what is being prepared for us. For example, to put into the air gigantic, really gigantic, up, up there, at uh, lenses so that they will deflect, prevent a large uh, amount of uh, sun rays to heat the earth, or to spread gigantic amounts of salt water into the atmosphere, which can do the same. Or to, to put millions of tons of uh, iron, iron as powder, into the sea, the idea is it will have the same effect, and so on. The, I mean, financially, this is far from impossible. This is relatively very cheap. Of course, we know what's the problem. The problem is that we never know what are the what are, the, what are the, 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 the unintended consequences, no? Like, you do this, okay, but what catastrophes can you cause as a byproduct? But again, I don't think that the option is to play this, a certain version of German conservative ecologism, we offended Mother Nature, let's return to some balance. There is no way back. So this would be one point. The second point is, Nonetheless, I'm not a catastrophist. You know, when you speak with people who claim, oh, and this brings us already close to materialist dialectics, you know, people who claim, oh my God, but uh, it's already the catastrophe is here, 2015, 20, everything will go wrong, whatever. Uh, I claim that this catastrophism is another refined way to, to, uh, to, to, to reject confronting the true threat, because it's basically an easy way out. The catastrophe is here, so why, why worry, let's enjoy it as far as we can, or whatever. I think that secretly, I always suspect, now I come close to a certain psychological mechanism, again, well described by Freud, I am more and more convinced that those preachers of soon-to-come apocalypse are caught in a certain superstitious mechanism, which works like, you know, if we talk a lot about it, maybe it will not happen. So I think when somebody tells you, stupid guy, you think about future having children, don't you know in five, ten years there will be almost no humans on the earth? I think we should treat him as someone who really doesn't believe it and doubts. The only consequent answer to such a person is, don't worry, there will be a catastrophe, don't worry, because they really worry there will not be. The other, even more tricky strategy here, is je sais bien mais quand même, I know very well, but, which is, I think, getting more and more popular, which is what many leftist critics correctly described as uh, lifestyle ecology. Instead of confronting problems at a large level, how to change our mode of production, industries, whatever, you know, they focus on personal small acts, like, you know, uh, recycle uh, uh, bottles, newspapers, and so on and so on. I do it, of course we should do it, but we should be aware that this is ultimately not the way. I always compare this to some, uh, to some uh, uh, 
to like the mechanism described by my Austrian friend Robert Faller, where he talks about uh, uh, football fans who sit at home, watch the match, and then shout, yeah, go ahead, you know, in kind of a magic thinking as if they can influence, even if they are at home, what goes on on the stadium. I think this uh, lifestyle ecology, it's a little bit of that. I think that the real reason, it's pure ideology, is not that we really believe that we can make a difference at this level. It's a feel-good phenomenon. It's, isn't it nice? I am also doing something for the Mother Earth. And it's so beautiful. I'm not alone. I'm part of a large movement. It makes my heart wa warm when I think about it, and so on and so on. So, you know, when we criticize ideology, that's the difficult part. Don't think only about big bad guys, you know. Like, uh, uh, I don't know, some uh, uh, direct racists and so on and so on. It's much more difficult to be self-critical. So now, next stop, step towards Hegel. Slowly, slowly, patience, you know. Uh, I, I think really what you, Frank, said, and I, I'm not kidding, especially to understand ideology today, for example, let's be concrete, sexism, racism, and so on. I claim, since we do live in a predominance of liberal permissive ideology, and since I nonetheless think that usually, till now, now I'm getting more skeptical after what is happening in Scandinavian countries, in Hungary, and so on, this new strength of uh, anti-immigrant racism, uh, that Racism survived not at the explicit level, but mostly at the implicit level of unsaid. If you analyze certain statements, here we must be really good Hegelian dialecticians. To get at what is wrong with it, it's not enough to focus on what is said, but what is not said when you say something, what is implied by what you say. Here again, I will steal a joke which was used by, you mentioned her, uh, my parteigenossin uh, Alenka Zupancic at the conference two months ago where she interpreted in detail a wonderful uh, a wonderful uh, one-liner but we are here I think about not more than two kilometers from the house of Ernst Lubitsch I think no so to celebrate Ernst Lubitsch a great materialist front of Hegel, I would say, you know. Uh, uh, you know, there is a wonderful joke in his Ninochka, which it's too, incidentally, it's too easy to dismiss as simply anti-communist. As many people noticed, with all, of course, anti-Stalinist jokes, communism is nonetheless treated in a basically half even respectful way. It's absolutely not the same as these violent anti-communist films, but okay, there is a wonderful scene there. If you saw the movie, I'm sure you remember it, where a guy enters a cafeteria and says, uh, uh, a coffee with cream. Sorry, a coffee without cream, please. And you know what the wait waiter answers. Sorry, we ran out of cream. We only have milk, so can I get you coffee without milk? <laughs> now, you will say, this is stupid, because in any case, he will get exactly the same, plain coffee. What does it matter if it's without milk or without cream? Ah, the lesson of dialectics is that it matters a lot.
because uh, the guy, if he were the customer to desire only plain coffee, he would have said a coffee. The reason he felt the need to deny is that I think it's clear that a much more complex structure is at work here. The question to ask is, but why do we add something to coffee? Precisely, this is my old thesis, the underlying structure is that of Kinder Surprise eggs, you know. <laughs> like, an ideal commodity is never just a commodity. Like Kinder Surprise egg, you get a surplus. In this case, a plastic toy or whatever. In This is an admission that you must add something to coffee. This would be the Lacanian object cause of desire, what Lacan calls the object small a, objected a. And uh, so the root of this without co or with milk is that already coffee is never simply coffee. It's coffee with a hole. And, okay, I will not now go into even more refined dialectics where you can nicely demonstrate how even coffee itself can fill in this hole. You can literally get coffee with coffee. When they say, for example, at, if you have too many bombs, drop them on Starbucks, that what they say there, like our coffee is not just a coffee, but really a coffee. Now, this is the split they refer to. And what I like here is how, again, negation is not simply negative. And I want now to supplement this example of Alenka Zupancic with one wonderful line to me. It is wonderful because nothing happens in this brief story. It's just a double negation. But it's an extreme, even obscenely virgal eroticization achieved in this way. It's from, did you see Brust Off? Some ten years ago, I think, one of these English uh, working class melodramas with the young Ivan McGregor, before he reinvented himself as Jedi and all that big commercial bullshit, <laughs> when he was still the working class actor. Uh, okay, I will not go into the story, minor strike and so on. The point is that he flirts with a more educated girl who works as a, some kind of uh, economist uh, preparing the closure of mines and so on. So they go out to eat and uh, she of, he, of course, ac accompanies her home. At the entrance to her house, she says, listen carefully, she says, uh, would you care to come up to my place for a coffee? He says, yeah, but there's a problem. I don't like coffee. And she answers, no problem. I don't have any. <laughs> you see, like, through this, she offers something, negates. Can you imagine a more obscene way of saying, come and screw your, my brains out of me? <laughs> you know? What I like is that it's totally, an, you know, you just offer something and deny it, and by denying it, basically, the message comes through in an even more, uh, in an even more transparent way. This, is, this would be, I claim, how ideology functions. You know, like, they can deny it as much as they want, you know. Like, uh, in the War of Terror, for example, I have an obscene version translated into that, no? Should we torture the prisoner? No, we will not torture him. It means <laughs> rather not imagine what and so on, no? So, okay. Uh, now, finally, surprise, surprise, I am coming to your topic.
I would like to begin, nonetheless, with two remarks on Hegel, because we are both aware of the madness of advocating Hegel today. Like, you know, this usual idea, my God, Hegel, the absolute idealist, the guy who thought he can read the mind of God and know everything that did, is happening, and will happen. Just to clarify two misunderstandings, to give you an idea, the bad thing is usually Hegel's notion of totality, like totalitarian, you know, link, like they say from Plato to NATO, from totality to totalitarianism. But if you read closely Hegel, what Hegel really means with his notion of totality is exactly the opposite. It's not every disharmonious element can find its place in a large totality. It's precisely that when you want to grasp a totality, you should include into totality all that disturbs it, undermines it, and so on. Again, example of totality would have been you want to talk about today's capitalism, then don't, don't talk only about Singapore or whatever, talk also about Congo, a country in total disarray with no functioning government, with over 100,000 of child soldiers, you know, the idea how they do it, no? If you take a child five, six years old and you put him on heavy drugs, in a couple of years you get a perfect killing machine, no? There are at least definitely over 100,000 of them, and so on and so on. So the idea of Hegelian totality is here, I think even Adorno was wrong, you know, with his big, das Ganze ist das Unware, no? Against Hegel, das Ganze ist das Ware. But that's, in a way, what Hegel meant, that das Ganze is nicht einfach das Ganze. Das Ganze ist das Ganze and all the bullshit which comes by and you are not allowed to dismiss it. Which is why also, to be very brief, when Hegel speaks about List der Vernunft, usually it's read in this cheap teleological way. Things may appear confused, but there is a higher intelligence, reasonable order, which guarantees that even if we don't know it, everything serves a purpose, but rational purpose. But if you read Hegel closely, I claim, List der Vernunft mean, means almost the exact opposite. It means whatever phenomenon you take, you can be absolutely sure that something will go wrong. <laughs> no? it's Hegel, isn't Hegel's so-called dialectical process a series of failures? And even at the end, you don't get the final success. You just get the pure form of failure, which, as we all know, is called absolutist vision. No? And, uh, okay, uh, based on all this, now, it's horrible to betray my principles and to really come to the point, no? I will do. But I will begin at the opposite end. Pöbel is for you, for me is König, the king, no? A little bit about democratic elements, no joke intended, of Hegel's uh, deduction of the necessity of monarchy. I want to begin with a strange reference. You mentioned Lenin. You know that it's an incredibly nice, although stupid phenomenon. Do you know that Jack London was one of the most popular authors in Soviet Union, reprinted in millions? You know why? Because Nadezhda Krupskaya wrote in her memoirs that one evening when Lenin was ill, she was reading to Lenin uh, uh, Jack London's short stories, and Lenin uh, liked some of them. This decided the fate, you know. Okay. Uh, 
it would be nice because today it's Chavez who tries a little bit to play this role. You know the legend of showing, uh, showing, of showing uh, Chomsky's book at United Nations and it immediately jumped to number one in Amazon.com. I know some of my ex-friends like Ernesto Laclau who then tried to repeat this, no? tried through their connections to convince Chavez to show. Chavez did a wonderful thing. He did show Ernesto Laclau's book on populism, but in some shitty province down in the middle of <laughs> Venezuela. No? So it did. Okay, seriously. Uh, Marti, uh, Jack London's Martin Eden is quite an interesting novel with no pun intended. You know, it ends with the hero's Suicide. The hero is a poor guy, working class, who becomes a successful writer. At the end, the hero kills himself. Why? Ah, it's interesting. So after long years and of struggle and hard work, Martin Eden finally succeeds, becomes a famous writer. However, while he is floating in wealth and fame, one thing puzzled him. The very mystery of his success. Here is a quote from Martin Eden. He had not changed. He was the same Martin Eden. What, what then made the difference? The fact that the stuff he had written had appeared inside the covers of books, but it was work performed. It was not something he had done since becoming famous. Therefore, it was not for any real value, but for a purely fictitious value that he is famous. End of quote. So what Martin Eden cannot accept is that is the radical gap which forever separates his real qualities from his symbolic status in the eyes of the others. All of a sudden, he is no longer a nobody avoided by respectable public, but a famous author invited by the pillars of society, with even the beloved woman who, before, when he was unknown, was rejecting him, now throwing herself at his feet. But he is fully aware that nothing changed in him, in his reality. He is now the same person as before. So what Martin cannot accept is this radical decentering of the very core of his personality. He is nothing in himself, just a concentrated projection of others' dreams. This perception that his, let's call it Agalma, the treasure deep in him, what makes him desired by others, is something that is outside of him. This not only ruins his Narcissism, but even kills his desire. Another nice quote from Martin Eden. Something has gone out of me. I have always been unafraid of life, but I never dreamt of being sated by, with life. Life has so filled me that I am empty of any desire for anything. It is this conclusion that I am nobody, nothing, which drove him to suicide. Now, insofar as the psychoanalytic term, Lacanian term, symbolic castration, is also one of the names of this gap between my, the immediate stupidity of my being and my symbolic title. Recall the proverbial disappointment of an adolescent. Is that miserable coward really my father? And since a symbolic authority can only function insofar as in a kind of 
illegitimate short circuit. This gap is obfuscated, and my symbolic authority appears as an immediate property or quality of me as a person. Each authority has to protect itself from situations, of course, in which this gap becomes palpable. The appearance of the king's or master's omnipotence has to be maintained. And here we come to Hegel. For Hegel, the definition of a king is precisely a very tragic one. The king, for Hegel, should be a subject who doesn't kill himself like uh, Martin Eden, but fully accepts this radical disenterment. A king is someone who very well knows people bow to me and so on, but it has absolutely nothing to do with me. The king is practically, in reality, its opposite. The king has to know I am a piece of shit, just in a totally contingent way, attached to a certain symbolic uh, title. In this way, uh, we should read famous Lacan's statement that, you know, a madman is not only a beggar who thinks he is a king. A madman is also a king who thinks he is a king. That is, they, who thinks that his authority is really engendered by his personality, or to paraphrase Marx, you know, this famous passage in first, from first chapter of Capital, where Marx says, uh, uh, this man is not a king, uh, uh, this, this, this man is not uh, treated as a king because uh, uh, he is a king, but he is a king because other people treat him as a king. This is difficult to accept. I'm sorry if you know this anecdote, but uh, there is a very nice military anecdote from German past which makes this constitutive stupidity of the king very clear. It's from the Prussian-Austrian War in 1866, when the Prussian king, formerly the supreme commander of the Prussian army, was observing the fight from a nearby hill. He, he just looked worried at what appeared to him the, the confusion of, on the, in the valley in front of him. You know, some Prussian troops seem to be progressing, others retreating, and so on and so on. Uh, then near him, General von Moltke was on a horse. He was the brain, the strategist. He planned the battle. And while, the, while to the king... The situation looks totally confused. He even thought, according to some rumors, that the Prussians are uh, losing. Moltke, at a certain point, observing with binoculars the, 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 the battle, turned to the king and tell, told him, may I be the first to congratulate your majesty for a brilliant victory. I love this. You know how? It's the total stupidity of the king. But nonetheless, he was, he was uh, the subject of king. And I claim that Hegel, Hegel's definition of the king is, again, it's precisely this kind of radical acceptance of your stupidity. A good king knows that he is in for nothing. Uh, 
here I think Marx missed the point in his early from, 80, from 43 critical remarks on Hegel's philosophy of right, where Marx concludes his remarks with the sarcastic note that the Hegelian monarch is nothing more than an appendix to his penis. But that's precisely what Hegel is saying. Such an utter alienation, such a reversal, by means of which a person becomes an appendix of its biological organ of procreation, is the price to be paid for, by, to be paid for acting like states' sovereignty uh, embodied. And Hegel makes this very clear, a quote from his Rechtsphilosophie. In a completely organized state, it is only a question of the culminating point of formal decision. The king. He has only to say yes and dot the I, because the throne should be such that the significant thing in its holder is not his particular make-up. In a well-organized monarchy, the objective aspect belongs to law alone, and the monarch's part is only to set to the law the effective, the subjective I will. Uh, and uh, now I cannot restrain myself, I'm sorry if some of you know this example, of how actual, to note how actual these remarks are with regard to the two great Oscar winners of the last year. The King's speech, which deals precisely with this problem, but with a totally mystifying gesture, and an even more reactionary film, The Black Swan. Why? Step by step. For me, The King's speech is the story of a quite normal, intelligent young man who is normal and he knows, if I become a king, I will be a piece of shit, you know, totally alienated. So, of course, he resists this by stuttering. I don't think there is anything pathological in his stuttering. This is his way of saying, uh -uh, I'm not a total idiot. I have minimal of self-awareness. And the whole story of the film is how does effectively that Australian uh, uh, coach, played by Jeffrey Rush, train him by precisely rendering him stupid. You remember how at the, towards the end of the film, the big scene when the king, okay, is on the path of recovery in the sense of able to speak fluently. Uh, when the, uh, the, the coach, uh, language trainer, uh, sits on, on one of the thrones, on the king's seat, and the king starts to shout, how dare you sit there, this is my seat. And the coach ironically asks, but why not me, why you? And the king shouts back, because I'm king by God's will, it's my right. And the coach says, now you are, I congratulate you. It's really rendering the king stupid enough to function as a king. And this is a very reactionary tendency today. It's really a movie about how to render us stupid enough, how to ungeschehen machen, undo the critical work and render us stupid enough to restore symbolic authority. The other movie is even much bad, much worse, I claim, Black Swan. Why? It's very simplistic reading that I will give you now. But I, I effectively think that it's deeply anti-feminist, uh, the black swan. Why? What is the hypothesis of 
the film, especially if we do it like coffee without milk, no? What is the milk here is the male position. A man, that's the premise secret of the film, can dedicate himself to the mission, like do have a, uh, how should I put it, uh, have a, uh, 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 be a king or whatever. You have a mission in life and still have a normal family, sex life, whatever you can. But a woman, and this is the old reactionary myth which you find from Hoffman up to Krzysztof Kislowski and Tarkovsky, that while a man can do this, a woman cannot, if a woman fully identifies her with her public mission, what she wants to be, the price will be her self-destruction. A woman cannot do it. A woman has to choose. Either your public mission, in this case ballet, usually in the history of romanticism and so on, it's singing, you know. From uh, Hoffman's tales, that story of, I think it's the second or the third one, the one who is tempted by the devil, even if she is ill, to sing, and then he sing, she sings and dies singing. And if you think that we are today any better, just think about Krzysztof Kislowski's most popular film, uh, uh, The Double Life of Veronique which tells exactly the same story. You have two Veroniques. The first one chooses mission, singing, pop, pop, drops that. The second one knows what the woman's limitations are, withdraws to private life, uh, she succeeds, and so on. So, so I think that Hegel was here definitely onto something. The Marxists who mocked Hegel here, did they not paid the price for this negligence in the sense that when they laughed at Hegel, oh, 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 Hegel and the king, but didn't this repressed dimension of the constitutive stupidity of the top figure return with a vengeance in the guise of the Marxist communist leader who is even worse than a king? Why? Because Stalin certainly did not just at the subjective I will. Stalin was not the one who said, you present me with documents, I will just sign them. Stalin thought that, you know, Stalin was, as it were, his own Moltke, you know. He thought he is the greatest genius, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, what uh, Hegel was aware was something very important that in a way even ancient Greeks and people from Venice knew and even uh, intelligent radical democrats from Jacobins onwards knew that uh, you cannot have a democratic system where the leader is simply chosen according to his, her real abilities. The moment you go on this path, you will end in, I hate the word, in some kind of totalitarianism. Genuine democracy always, ancient Greeks knew this, even in Venice, which was not an ideal democracy, knew this, uh, and so on. You need a moment of chance. There must be a moment of contingency. And I think that here, Hegel uh, is simply... Too short, but as you nicely said, is not Hegelian enough. Where he is not consequent enough is to limiting this logic of 
contingency, this gap between effective, Hegel was right in his intuition that the effective qualities should not directly legitimize you to rule. That this short circuit, precisely because we are dealing with society, where the point is who regulates social relations, direct qualifications shouldn't be enough. And Hegel was on the right path when he proposed contingency, an element of contingency. The point he didn't see is why should this contingency be limited to, to, uh, to just to the top, to the king. You can also introduce contingency into a democratic system, all well-functioned democracies uh, involved a moment of contingency. The moment you give power to those for whom you think they are really qualified, you are one step towards Bologna reform, uh, expert knowledge, and so on and so on. It's, uh, it's rather, it gets rather, uh, it gets rather uh, terrifying. So again, Hegel was, I claim, on the path of something very important, even very egalitarian. It's that who is on the top must be left to some kind of contingency, which is the very democratic principle, that in principle everyone can be up uh, on the top. Uh, so let's go a step further here. Uh, Hegel saw this, I claim, because precisely he was in, an, in a unique position between traditional order founded on symbolic authority, the king is divine, and modern society founded on real qualifications, let the best rule us, and so on and so on. Hegel saw something in between. And here again we should, precisely because we are in another in-between, return to Hegel. Now finally, betraying my, all my principles, I come to you. Uh, uh, Things get complicated when you combine this top contingency at on the top with pebble, rebel, with the excess on the bottom. Isn't maybe, and here we should maybe refer to Marx, uh, to uh, Accent Brumaire, isn't it that this precisely defines modern uh, populist authoritarianism, Bonapartism. As Marx puts it very nicely, uh, uh, although, you know, when Marx is asked, uh, approaches the simple question, who is the real social base of Napoleon der Dritte? He gives three apparently contradictory answers, but they work together, I claim. First, there is a famous passage, you must know it, when Marx says, Bonaparte represents those basically stupid, disorganized farmers, those who are not able of actively representing themselves. Then Marx uses another wonderful formula that uh, uh, Louis Bonaparte, Napoleon III, uh, plays a kind of a game of representing each class for all others, you know. 
First, he takes something from others and gives to farmers, lower taxes, whatever. Then he takes from farmers and gives to the merchants. Then he takes from them. You know, this kind of a typically proto-fascist, you just circle, and Marx ends up, of course, with a wonderful formula of the greatest desire of Napoleon der Dritte is probably to steal all France just to give it back as his personal gift, like Proto Bill Gates, no, who is doing this in some way. Okay, let's go on. But then Marx adds a crucial further element, where he says that, but in the real sense, the true foundation of Napoleon der Dritte is the rebel, pebble, all those outcasts, bandits, and so on and so on. So it would be interesting again to read this modern populism as a direct short circuit between, between top and bottom. But of course, I am far too reduce a rebel to this. I deeply agree with Frank's analysis, which is, now I will be a school teacher and, or rather a pupil, in the sense that, you know, I love this humiliating gesture, you must remember it from elementary school, when a teacher uh, tells you, after telling you some story, now, would you please stand up and tell with your own words what this story. Now, I will tell with my own words. I hope you will give me a good, great, Frank, you know, what I see. First thing, uh, it's a v why the reason I think you are right, this example of Pöbel is crucial. It's not only that you can here catch Hegel, if you permit me this obscene metaphor, with his pants down, you know, when he is cheating, not Hegelian enough, but also the way you resolve this question it's the focus of the entire ambiguity of Hegel's dialectics, of what does it mean, what Hegel calls concrete universality. What Hegel doesn't do to be there is something that, if you take seriously the elementary dialectical mechanism of reflexive determinations and so on, should have done. Because the absolutely elementary rule of Hegelian dialectics is that in a certain totality, that a, a totality always includes an element which is what Jacques Rancière calls uh, part of no part, or Alain Badiou calls the symptomal point, an element which is formally part of that totality, but at the same time has no proper place within this totality, its inherent excess. And the absolutely unambiguous conclusion for Hegel, or even axiom, is that it is precisely this excluded element, the element without proper place in the hierarchic order of things, that stands for universality as such. This goes from Christianity, where when Christ says, if you don't hate your mother, father, you are not my follower, means exactly doesn't mean you have to hate your mother or father, although I have nothing against it. But that, uh, what I want to say is that mother and father, I claim, in the Bible when Christ says that, stand simply for the organic, hierarchic, social order. And his idea of Christ is that precisely in order to participate in true universality, you have to step out. 
to use, but use term, subtract yourself from, from this order. This consequence, unfortunately, Hegel does not draw. Oh, that precisely the rebel pebel is the point of universality. And, you know, we know this today. We can put it, even Marx then repeats this, you know, when he says that precisely proletarians as a, as a without proper place, as a displaced subject, without proper place, stand for menschheit, for universality of humankind as such, and so on. Uh, so, again, this is... Missing in Hegel, very, to put it in very simple terms. Second point, the entire, the fate of the entire Hegelian dialectic is decided here. Because if you miss this point, which is precisely what Hegel calls, again, gegensätzliche Bestimmung, oppositional uh, determination, that the universal principle has to find itself within its own particular elements in the guise of the lowest, of the element which has no proper place, and so on and so on. Uh, if you forget this, you are in basically protofascism, corporatism. This is why no wonder that the first big political Hegelian philosophy after the decline of Hegelianism, the British Hegelianism of the late 19th century, Bradley, MacTaggart, and so on, was deeply corporate proto-fascist. It's this fascist reading of Hegel, concrete society of estates, it means every social group has its own particular place in social totality. Nobody can have a direct access towards universality without, without particular, without mediation of particularity. They read this Hegelian phrase as a kind of a ultimate political wisdom, which means the corporate point that liberal global egalitarian elections are to be rejected because they don't take into account the organic hierarchy of a social edifice. So the idea is that you should only have influence as a member of an estate or whatever, not directly. But precisely, we don't have time to go into it, uh, uh, if you read it in this way, you lose the whole point of what Hegel calls negativity, which is that you have a conflict which runs within the universality itself, that universality always fights itself in the guise of its oppositional determination. This, I think, would be the difference of a true leftist reading of Hegel uh, with the difference between first this right-wing proto-fascist reading of Hegel and what I hate even more than this reading the Pittsburgh Hegelian Habermasianized uh, 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 John McDowell uh, uh, or especially uh, and all the others uh, Pippin and so on, Brandom recognition reading of Hegel. Hegel as the ultimate philosopher, this is the liberal Hegel. And the only true revolution, or rather counter-revolution, in the last 20, 30 years is the rise of this third liberal Hegel, Hegel of recognition. We don't have time to go into uh, that. What I'm saying is that, and I will return to this at the end, it's precisely such a reading of Hegel, corporate reading, where you say rational state is organic totality, each at his, her own place. Today in China, they call this harmonious society, uh, uh, which opens up the space for anti 
anti-Semitism, of course, because Jews are then, by definition, without a proper place in this organic uh, social uh, edifice. So again, although Hegel knew very well that the excess of people is structurally necessary, Hegel is very honest here. He says there are ways to deal with this problem, colonization, charity, and so on, but the problem cannot really be resolved because the society itself, the more it gets rich, the more it uh, generates uh, poor. Uh, so again, as Frank demonstrates wonderfully, two crucial things. First, Hegel is not Hegelian enough here, and second point, even more important maybe, don't read his book as an, another of the traditional Marxist mantras of how Hegel didn't see it because he spoke about people, not about proletariat, working class. If anything, we should maybe in today's situation where it is clear that if we are to have any serious chance of a global emancipatory movement, we cannot just play the cards of the traditional working class. We have to include the dispossessed, the colonized, those, the outcasts, and so on and so on. So what I'm tempted to say is that even at the very pragmatic level of emancipatory political activity, we should maybe re return a little bit from Marx to Hegel rehabilitate the notion of pebble. For example, I noticed how the Somalian pirates talk almost like Hegel, you know, because Hegel basic critiques of pebble, although he then corrects himself. Hegel is very radical here. You know that Hegel at one point says that in a way pebble, uh, uh, the rabble is right. They don't get any recognition from society, so they don't owe anything to society. In other words, Hegel says they have full right to, to rebel. <clears throat> then Hegel describes as one of the attitudes of the people that as if society owes them without them working some kind of subsistence. This is precisely, I remember, one of this demand for subsistence without work is one of the self-justifications of uh, of the Somali uh, pirates. <clears throat> so, okay, uh, to slowly, I didn't say conclude, I said approach the conclusion. Now, uh, uh, I think that the underlying, apart from political consequences, uh, more general problem here is the status of negativity in Hegel. Without historicizing Hegel, I'm not saying that we should do it in this not very productive, I think, way which was first proposed by Engels, you know, this boring mantra of uh, the contradiction between Hegel's system and Hegel's method, that the method is open, eternal struggle of opposites, but the system is closed. I'm not saying this, because precisely with Hegel, if you read him closely, the system is not closed. It's extremely interesting to ask this epistemological question without conceding, uh, histori uh, without regressing into evolutionary historicism. Uh, 
how to interpret within Hegel's horizon serious a series of statements where Hegel constantly self-relativizes his uh, view. No, Hegel is not claiming. Quite on the contrary, I can read the mind of God. For example, read the introduction to his philosophy of history, where, apropos United States of America and Russian Empire, Hegel says something not so stupid, if you take into account that it was said in 1820s. He said, it's too early to develop the philosophy of these two states. Next century will be their century. Not so stupid, admit it. Then, quite often in his philosophy of nature, he says, about this we don't yet know enough. We cannot say, not to mention the absolute conclusion of his whole system. The last pages of his Vorlesungen über die Geschichte der Philosophie. Okay, Hegel is Hegel, I love this. He ends with aha, himself, that's life, of course. But then, at the very end, read it, he says something like, this is for the time being till further change their standpoint, blah, blah, blah. So he totally takes into account uh, that he is not the end. I mean, uh, I mean uh, so those readers of Hegel, intelligent ones, like Robert Solomon, I don't always agree with him, but here he is right, are right who claim that absolutist vision is not this kind of, oh, I know everything. It's rather the most radical limitation that you can imagine. It's the historical point where you cannot see outside. You cannot see more with all, <coughs> with all reflexivity. So from here, we should approach this difficult question. We have here the excess of rebel, which is an excess it stands for immediate universality, and as Hegel makes it clear, it cannot ever be reintegrated into his rational state. Then, if we reread Hegel in this way, we find a whole series of uh, these, let's call them, excesses of negativity. It is, for example, I already did this in a book that I pu co-published with Marcus Gabriel in German, his theory of madness in the first chapter, uh, Anthropology of Philosophy Disguised. It's breathtaking. He's more Foucauldian than Michel Foucault himself. Hegel says there that the possibility of madness is constitutive of being human. We become human only through overcoming the po potential of madness, which is not simply sublated, aufgehoben, always remains as a potential threat. Up to then we have a rebel, we have this, then we have, a, oh, I don't have time to talk about it, sorry guys, no sex today. But nonetheless, read, it's worth reading, Hegel's theory of marriage. Like, if you cut the crap and try to get what Hegel is saying, it's something absolutely wonderful. Okay, I will give you just the result. We don't have time to go through. Basically, Hegel's theory, you know, Hegel was opposed to this romantic love of uh, 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 passion and so on, no? What Hegel is saying is something so brutal. If you really read him closely, he says something like this. Are you passionately in love? So marry the person, because then, living with the person, seeing, you know, the dirty side, she's dirty or he doesn't wash herself, makes vulgar sounds, in a couple of months, the 
desire will go out of it and you will be able to lead normal, peaceful life and so on and so on. So you marry not to get her or him, but to lose him or her, to bring back peace into your life. This here, Hegel implicitly turns around in a materialist way what is usually celebrated as the great materialism of Pascal. You know, Pascal is usually read, Altisser read him in this way, not the famous Pascalian uh, uh, advice, you don't believe, act as if you believe prayer and so on, and belief will come by itself. I think Pascal was wrong. The entire wisdom of the Catholic Church is based on the very deep opposite insight. The problem of the church is that people shouldn't believe too much. If they believe too much, they become gnostics, whatever. They make fun of the church as an institution. And church is a great institution. Church was never never bothered by how people believe. Church didn't want you to believe too much because then you can question the church and so on, no? So I think we should rephrase uh, we should rephrase Pascal today. Do you believe too much? Do you have an madly intense relationship to God? That's bad. It disturbs your life. Ask as if you believe and you will no longer have to believe. Rituals will do it for you. And again, this would have been then a uh, uh, Pascalian also theory of marriage. You love a certain person too much like Hegel. Act, marry her, and love will get automatic, you know. Love will be already in the very ritualized form, you know. So, like, if it's already said, you know, like, it's nice to be married because then uh, the wife or man, okay, I am a man, I will say wife after one year tells you, but listen, darling, you no longer caress me, where is love? And married means you can tell her, fuck you, here is the marriage contract which says I love you, so it's already there, so leave me alone. <laughs> Great for you. Okay, more serious. And then my last royal example, war. Absolutely, usually it's read this Hegel's deduction of the necessity of war, as you know, the darkest militarism and so on. No, it has a certain very deep uh, potential. It's not the question of war. It's the question of Hegel is fully aware that this uh, rational corporate state never functions, that it needs from time to time the return of radical negativity. Here, referring to Frank's formula, I would say what Hegel didn't see and should have seen it as a Hegelian is that the true way towards this is not outside struggle, War. It's Thomas Jefferson. You know that wonderful totalitarian statement that the tree of freedom had to be watered by blood from time to time. The necessity of rebellion. If Hegel were to be consequent, here you should have negativity. Not outer war, but from within. Okay, now if you just allow me to add some problematic political (coughs) comments. The problem, of course, today is who is this? part of no part, and so on. I admit it, in certain constellations, like, for example, in Nazism, this function was uh, localized into the Jews. And let me begin by the fact that this, I will now try to approach with some concluding Hegelian remarks, this very traumatic topic of anti-Semitism and the left. First, let me assure you, absolutely no 
compromises from my side here. I don't buy the bullshit of some people who claim, you know, the Palestinians suffered so much that we should show some understanding. No? No, because exactly the same thing that you can say for the Jews. Let them, let them terrorize the Palestinians because they suffered so much and so on and so on. This is absolutely inadmissible. And to be clear, absolutely inadmissible, especially for an authentic Jew. I mean, I cannot imagine more anti-Jewish statement than this bargaining, you know. We suffered, allow us to do a little bit dirty work there, and so on. It's very sad, this almost mirror image. Point two, I also don't buy this uh, historicist justification, where people say, okay, many Arabs, not only Arabs, may shout death to the Jews, but what they really mean is not Jews, but just the Zionist state of Israel. Well, my answer to this is, are they so stupid? If they really mean it, why don't they say it? Because all, it can be shown in the most elementary way, for example, that, although he wasn't aware of it, but when Hitler said Jews, this was a kind of a mystifying ersatz for capitalism, no? But nonetheless, unfortunately, he didn't say capitalism, no? He said Jews precisely in order to avoid saying capitalism, in order to save capitalism. This is why, now, if you allow me the last minutes for a little bit of, how do you call it, pro domo sua, this is why I got in trouble with my last book in German and some others, and of course, I don't make any compromises here, I defend my position to the end, when... Uh, in United States already, the publisher got almost a heart attack with that statement of mine, Hitler was not uh, violent, radical enough. Like, oh, you want him to kill all of us Jews, no? They didn't get my point, which was exactly the opposite. My point was that, and I think this is, on the contrary, the most radical anti-fascist point, that it's wrong to celebrate Hitler as this kind of a, Hannah Arendt was very well aware of it, to condemn him as diabolic, but nonetheless elevate him like some kind of a radical, diabolical greatness and so on and so on. Like, you know, like some right-wingers like to say, okay, okay, Hitler did some horrible thing, but he had balls to do them. No, he didn't have balls. We should insist on it that Hitler was basically a coward. He killed millions. Why? Not to do the real thing, to change a little bit capitalist relations. Hitler's violence was, in Nietzsche's term, a reactive violence. We should insist on it. Otherwise, again, we give way too much to Hitler, my God. Which is why I supplemented my statement with something which, which caused, some problem, caused me some problems in India, unfortunately. Uh, uh, when they told me there, no, sorry, when I said there that, that Gandhi was more violent than Hitler. <laughs> then, like, are you crazy or what? Even, you know, a wonderful thing happened. I must tell you, I cannot resist this anecdote. Two weeks after my visit to India, a friend whose wife works at Slovene Foreign Ministry. You know, we are a small country, everybody knows everyone else, so it's no problem to learn this. Told me that two weeks after my visit, a special Depeche diplomatic note came from India to Slovene Foreign Ministry, asking them, your philosopher, Slovene citizen, claimed that 
Gandhi is worse than, he, than Hitler. Is this the official policy of Slovene government? <laughs> I tried to convince them to answer, not yet, but we are just thinking on it. We will let you know what. They really didn't get it. My point is that Gandhi didn't kill anyone, more or less. Even there. But, uh, but in a way, he did what Hitler was afraid to do. He really tried to stop the functioning of the British colonial state, something that Hitler never did. His whole activity was, you know, this is the definition of right-wing violence, to depoliticize the situation, to bring things back to normal. So this is the first misunderstanding. So let's go on. No compromise with anti-Semitism here. I even think that whenever you do find among in the so-called left even a minimal trace of anti-Semitism, it's always a signal of a, something wrong with the revolutionary or whatever project itself. For example, it's true, although now he apologized, Castro called him to give him the order. I learned from friends of my friends who have connections. Hugo Chavez did make some slightly tasteless, at its best, amb ambiguous remarks. But I claim that this is just a clear sign of the faithful limitation of his populist uh, project. This is a sign of something is wrong with his famous socialism for 21st century or whatever. No? So again, no compromise here. Problems start with me, and I will tell you exactly why, when you go a little bit, not too far in a quantitative sense, but see what I mean. Uh, for example, Bernard-Henri Lévy made, brought this line of absolute suspicion of any kind of anti-Zionism as really anti-Semitism, he was honest enough to go to the very end and said not only is, uh, he claims that it is suspicious today to be anti-capitalist. In contrast to the standard Marxist thesis that anti-Semitism is a time out. Yes, time out if you apply the metaphysical linear notion of time. I protest logocentrism and linearity. I agree with critics of this notion of time from Heidegger to Derrida. Who are you to question this great... Now you have to make uh, either... Benjamin called this, this, you know, as opposed to yet revolutionary, this historicist time. To say time out means to make fun of the suffering. Okay, sorry, <laughs> sorry. I will, I will stop very shortly. I'm sorry. No, but really, really shortly. Uh, uh, you know, he said then he went one step further and said, anti-capitalism capitalism is today a mask for anti-Semitism. No, this is where you end up. So what is my point here? Let me just really to conclude, give you two, just two points. First one, and before you start shouting, I must tell you, I presented this line of thought in Jerusalem to people who were not just some pro-terrorist Palestinians, <laughs> who were Jews with, if you want to be pathetic, with a certain numbers tattooed here. 
and they totally accepted it, that we have to accept, uh, this is a bad thing for some maybe, uh, Zionism as the latest form of anti-Semitism. Ah, what do I mean by that? You know what made me incredibly suspicious? This totally unnatural marriage, which is a new thing, it lasts now only about 20 years, I think, between Zionists in the United States and the, how are they called, and the uh, American conservative religious right, fundamentalists, Baptists, and so on. Now, I told to myself, something doesn't work here. Because if there is a group of people where you don't have to do any complex analysis, it's in their phrenology, in their blood, to be anti-Semitic. It's this American conservative Baptist whatever right. All of a sudden, they support Zionism, although with limitations. For example, Glenn Beck, my fa- you know the crazy right-wing commentator of Fox News. Finally, he got crazy and turned directly anti-Semitic and was fired. What I want to say is that, uh, you know what gave me this idea? I was once in Israel in a debate. And some of my friends, like Udi Aloni, were brutally attacked by Zionists. Jewish friends, all of them. How? In what words? Wonderful. They were approached that they were told, you only look to be act as one of us, Jews, but you are really not. You are a foreign body, not really identified with our community, you just freely, and so on, and so on. To cut a long story short, I told myself, but wait a minute, these are exactly the terms used in the last 19th century to designate the Jews. So I really think I'm not saying that now, to generalize this. What I'm saying is that the state of Israel is something which, it's more of a tragic situation, deeply affects the Jewish identity. You know, you cannot have it both ways. That's the tragedy. It's not me who judges this from outside. I don't allow you. Who am I to allow them something or not? It's simply, you cannot have it both. A full nation state and what Jews historically were. Second point, uh, you know, like, you know, Bernard and Rivelli likes to boast, oh, I visited everything, you know, here and there and all the dangerous places. It's strange that he didn't yet visit the West Bank. Now, I agree with those who claim, why focus only on Israel and so on and so on? I agree with this. Often the criticism of Israel is extra sensitive, unjustified, and so on. But all this said, let's face it, I agree, it's tasteless to make these disgusting comparisons, you know, what uh, Nazis were doing to the Jews, they are now doing to the Palestinians. I'm the first to reject it. But much more modestly, their whole strategy on the West Bank Whatever you say is not fair. That's all I'm saying. And you know whom I am referring here to convince you of this? They are such a refreshing reading. The first generation state of Israel leaders. My God, read Ben-Gurion and so on. It's, they were the authentic fighters. I respect them. And they don't bullshit. Ben-Gurion says openly, 
Look into my, it's not translated into German book on violence where I gave all the quotes. It's something like, let's be clear, we have no right to this land. We are perceived as colonizers and it's simply who will win, his will be the right. No bullshitting there, absolutely no bullshitting. Moshe Dayan, in 56, at a funeral of a, uh, of a, of a, of a Jewish farmer killed by Palestinians across the border, around Gaza. He says, let's not condemn them. In their place, we would do the same thing, and so on, and so on. I'm saying that if you start talking like this, it's the beginning of, it's the beginning of honesty. Then, you know what's the tragedy of the West Bank? That it's not a lot of physical violence, but it's really, as the book says, uh, uh, occupation by bureaucracy. It's absolutely breathtaking. It's like some kind of Michel, you are cutting my head, I know. Okay, so, no, really to end with the personal, I wanted to approach, but you can ask me this, also, that big stupidity, my friends at Zurkam told me, circulating now in Germany, about me, an anti-Semite who claimed that all the Jews should be killed, except those who are critical of the state of Israel. Sorry to tell you, I didn't know that such a brutal manipulation is possible. Of course, my best friend in the city journal, uh, Mercur, reprinted this attack on me, blah, blah. It's absolutely unambiguously clear that I refer there to the argumentation of my enemy. It's absolutely unambiguous. Okay, but to let me stop is with what I consider good activity to bring peace. Peace, maybe not. Elements of peace to the Middle East. And I'm proud to be part of it, but it's tragic. Was it also in your media that a guy called Giuliano, or what Giuliani, who is a unique person, half Jew, half Palestinian, he ran a so-called Freedom Theater in Jenin. An extraordinary thing. Young Palestinians, totally secular, wanting blah, 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 blah. And the already mentioned friend of ours, Udi Aloni, wanted to organize there a summer school on cinema theory. Yeah, our friends in Jenin told us no bullshit about free Palestina. Just come here and treat us normally as people who want to learn something. And we had this wonderful, and sorry, I'm sorry, that, okay, this guy Giuliano, who was the head of uh, Jenin Freedom Theater, was shot into the head by Hamas. The idea was that with this neutral approach, let's share the same culture, we are already intervening too much, and so on, and so on. So again, when my friends are killed by Hamas, I find it just a little bit tasteless to be accused of supporting Palestinian terrorism. In the same way as that jerk from the site, my ex-half-friend, Thomas Ashoyer, accused me of sympathizing with Ahmadinejad. Sorry, I find this tasteless. Because I publicly supported Musavi, the result is that two of my translators into Parsi are tortured, are in prison now. You know, like, at least I can say this for me. I'm at the same time attacked from one side as anti-Semitic and from the other side regularly. The old Mubarak Ahram, every couple of months, as the most perfidious Zionist propaganda. If both sides attack you for the same text, 
then maybe I'm on the right way. So I wish you the same. To be attacked from all sides, you will be poor and jobless, but you will have the deep moral satisfaction. <laughs> Thanks very much to you.